Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, it's Friday, June 12th, and it has been another intensely busy week. The Black Lives Matter movement really dominated the news cycle, including relating to facial recognition technologies, which have long been controversial in the U.S. and now are a little too hot to touch. There was also some really interesting news around Instacart, DoorDash, and Grubhub. And frankly, a lot more than that, though we do want to save time for our interview this week with Lo Tony, a former partner at GV and the founder of Plexo Capital, who we think you'll enjoy hearing from. Alex, let's jump into things, starting with moves by Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft this week. Yes, all three companies announced this week that they would not license their facial recognition technology to U.S. police departments. Facial recognition technology has become toxic because its opponents believe that it unfairly singles out people of African-American descent and other minorities. In addition, they fear that it can be used as a tool for governments that want to target minority communities. In a recent test by privacy researchers led by Joy Bulamwini, who founded an organization called Algorithmic Justice League, Amazon's software misidentified 28 lawmakers as people arrested in a crime. These are big moves by Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft, but critics say that they don't go far enough. Amazon's statement was only 102 words, and it stopped short of saying whether or not Amazon would license the technology to the federal government. Amazon also owns Ring, which privacy groups have criticized for partnering with hundreds of police forces granting them potential access to camera footage of many American streets. Ring doesn't offer facial recognition, but its video can be shared with police who have it. In separate news, Instacart and DoorDash are raising money at record valuations. So because of COVID, we've all become much more familiar with these services and they have grown exponentially. Instacart, as a result, yesterday announced that it has raised a whopping $225 million in new funding led by DST Global and General Catalyst at a valuation of $13.7 billion. That's way up from the $8 billion where it was valued in 2018. But then again, orders are up apparently 500% this year and its services are now available at 30,000 stores across the U.S. and Canada. So Instacart is having quite a moment. Separately, DoorDash, the food delivery company, is reportedly holding talks with its existing shareholders, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, and SoftBank, about selling hundreds of millions of dollars in equity at a $15 billion valuation, according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, this valuation has shot up really fast. It was valued at $13 billion last year, but in 2018, it was valued at $3 billion. DoorDash is an interesting company because it's really battling more and more rivals. There's a lot of overlap in terms of geography. Customer loyalty has dropped as rivals offer deeper discounts to win business. So despite rapid growth for food delivery companies, especially like DoorDash, profits have remained largely elusive. Yes, that's why a lot of people believe that there will be a lot of consolidation in this industry. Earlier this year, Just Eat and Takeaway merged in a $7.6 billion merger. And recently, this week in fact, Just Eat acquired Grubhub, the biggest public U.S. company focused on food delivery. Grubhub has had a tough run. Its shares plummeted last year, and it was involved in discussions with Uber Eats about a merger. But that deal fell through. 
I'm still curious as to how helpful or hurtful all of these apps really are. There was a really interesting piece in the Times on maybe Monday or Tuesday that talked about these apps casting themselves as economic saviors for restaurants, especially in the pandemic, but their fees have become really onerous to the point that some companies will never be able to open their doors again. Complaints about the fees that the apps charge to both restaurants and consumers are longstanding, but several restaurants are worrying more publicly that they'll soon have even less power in pushing back against the fees. And these companies have also received a lot of lack from shoppers, the people who actually go out and get the goods. Shoppers for Instacart have complained bitterly about their treatment and have petitioned for a minimum 10% tip. And next up, our interview with Lo Tony, a former GV partner and today the founder of Plexo Capital, which invests both in startups and emerging VC funds, with 60 to 65% of the capital going toward funds as an LP and the rest going directly to startups. Tony is a really interesting guy with some very practical advice on how to address the increasingly noticeable racial imbalance in the venture industry. of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte recommend investing into art. And it makes sense. Art has outperformed the S&P by over 180% since 2000, with virtually no correlation according to a 2019 Citibank study. But how can you access this insiders-only asset class generally reserved for billionaires? With Masterworks.io, an exclusive investment platform for multi-million dollar artworks from artists whose works have appreciated at 8 to 30% annually, get paid when the painting sells, or flip your shares on their secondary market. It's that simple. If you're looking to protect your portfolio from risk, take a look at real, tangible assets like art. You can invest in paintings by artists like Monet, Warhol, and Banksy today. Sign up and tell them Strictly VC sent you to skip their 15,000-person waitlist. We talked with Low Tony earlier this week, and my first question was simply, how are you doing? It's been a tough couple of weeks. Over this weekend, I definitely have gotten more hopeful than I've been in, in quite some time. So that, I think, is a, is a good thing. Same. I mean, I have to say, I think a lot of us just didn't realize just how ubiquitous the police brutality situation was. I mean, I've just heard so many stories over the last week that have brought me to tears, and obviously, I'm sure a lot of other people... But of course, we're talking about technology today. So I wanted to, first off, get readers more acquainted with Plexo Capital. I'm sure some of them are familiar. So you most recently spent more than four years with GV as a partner, and then you sort of incubated this idea at GV and then spun it out last year. So tell us a little bit about it. That's right. So I was formerly a partner with GV, focusing on making direct investments GV, formerly Google Ventures, is the early stage investing unit of Alphabet, the holding company for Google as well. At GV, we were looking at ways to increase access to to differentiated deal flow and had a great hypothesis around women and people of color having a different path to venture and ending up with really unique networks and a great lens to evaluate both opportunities and founders. 
And so we went out and did five LP investments. We invested as, a, as an LP, which is short for limited partner. Those are the folks that invest into venture funds. And we got some great black GPs and the strategy worked for us. We were able to get access to some great deals that were building momentum. GV invests at a later stage, so it kind of made sense to go after folks that were investing at an early stage or the seed stage, even the pre-seed stage. Those folks included Charles Hudson, Precursor Ventures, Eric Moore, Base Ventures, Ryan Neese, Next Play Capital, uh, Miriam Rivera at Ulu Ventures, and Marlon Nichols at what was then Cross Culture and is now Mac Venture Capital. So those were the original GV5, and I decided to scale that strategy up, and so came up with the concept for Plexo Capital in, in February of 2016 and did some research, put on my product manager hat and kind of thought about what is the problem that we're trying to solve, what's the opportunity, and then focused on it full time in between Thanksgiving and Christmas of 2016. And then ultimately, after incubating it for a while, spun it out in March of 2018. That's great. So you announced the close in December of $42.5 million. Is that correct? Yes. Is GV Alphabet sort of the anchor investor? Because I saw you have a great group of LPs, Intel Capital, Cisco Investments, the Royal Bank of Canada. That's right. So Alphabet is our anchor investor. And then we added Intel Capital, Cisco Investments, Royal Bank of Canada, Kapoor Capital, the Hampton University Endowment, and also the Ford Foundation. A few individuals in there as well, but those are the big names. Is Google part of the general partner? No. I'm 100% of the management company and the GP. So, Loplexo now is committing 60 to 65% of that capital to venture capital funds, so sort of like a fund of funds, and then another 35 to 40% going directly to startups. So can you tell us a little bit about your investments now that Plexo has spun out on its own? So are you, you maintaining those stakes in those five firms? Are you reinvesting in them? Have you invested in anyone else? Right. So what we did as part of our deal structure with Alphabet, the original five LP investments that we made at GV, we brought those with us to Plexo Capital as part of the anchor investment terms with Alphabet. And then we've made a total of 20 LP commitments, and that includes the original five. So we've made an additional 15 since we made those original five at GV. What are some of those? Just because I feel like it's great to raise more awareness around some of these funds that are not quite as high profile as Precursor, for example. Sure. So we committed to Base 10, that's Ade. We committed to Boom Ventures, that's Celestine Johnson. We invested in Ingressive in Lagos, Nigeria. That's Maya. We did Investo in Mexico City. We did Workbench out of New York City. We also did Equal Ventures, that's Richard Kirby out of New York City. We did Kindred Ventures, that's Kanye and Steve Jang. We did ATO Ventures, that's Jennifer out of Puerto Rico. We did Bold Start, which is Ed and Elliot out of New York City. So we have a nice coverage across not only the, the continental United States, but off of the, the continental U.S. as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Lagos, Mexico City, Puerto Rico. How do you form relationships with those sort of farther flung 
GPs? Yeah, so these are all folks that are inside of our networks. I've known Maya with Ingressive and Lagos. You know, she was born in Minnesota, half Nigerian. She was going back and forth between the African continent and the United States, developed some great relationships with companies that were looking to understand the ecosystem in Africa. So she had done a great job of building that up, became a magnet for deal flow. And I just met her through our network. So I've known her, gee, I've known her for about six or seven years now. You know, it's those types of relationships that really help to understand the individual making the decisions and also understanding their network and the access that they have. And I think we benefited at Plexo Capital once the word got out that GV was making the LP investments, we were able to attract a lot of deal flow. And then I just reached out to my network and told them, If there are GPs, and GP means general partner, GP and VC go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. If there are GPs that fit our profile, please send them our way. And then we benefit from getting some nice press coverage. So we receive a lot of inbound as a result of that, which is nice. Lo, according to a study by HBS, less than 1% of VCs are African-American. Is part of your mandate to bring new people into VC? And if so, how would you do that? We are very fortunate to be in a position to be able to amplify that message. And I feel fortunate that I've been able to develop a great network over years. And one of our goals is to be able to increase the number of African-Americans, just not only hanging their own shingle with their own firm, but also inside of other firms. So at Plexo Capital, we spend a lot of time working with our our friends and colleagues over at groups like Black VC, which is uh, led by Elliot over at Bessemer and Fred over at Storm and Sidney Sykes. They've done a great job of organizing African-Americans and black folks in venture capital. And so specifically, our action plan is twofold. Number one, we have started to think about how we can develop a Y Combinator of sorts to better assist those Fund 1 and Fund 2 Black GPs so that they are able to understand all the nuances of making the transition from being a great investor to being a great fund manager. Being a great fund manager means understanding how to build out your LP base, how to prepare marketing materials, how to effectively go and pitch your strategy, raise not only capital from high net worth, but also institutional capital, and then be able to manage the LP communications, develop investor relations as a strategy, understand all the components required in the back office, the legal side for fund formation, portfolio construction. So we've put together a lot of of content and material, and we want to formalize that into a program So that when we work with a young GP that is starting their own firm, we can do more than just provide capital. We can leverage our network to be able to help get them meetings with institutional grade LPs that are looking for that type of strategy and help assist with the ability to put together the documents required to form the fund and try to make that process more efficient. Be able to get those introductions to help raise capital and then also be able to make the fund formation process more efficient and less costly. And I think another thing that that we're also exploring and putting a strategy in place around is the ability to help a lot of these younger GPs with working capital to be able to incur the 
expenses that it takes to start a fund. I mean, it can take, you know, on average a million dollars to start a fund when you think about foregoing salary for 24 months, paying all of these service providers out of pocket, then having to potentially hire someone, you're paying that out of pocket, doing all the travel associated. Some of those expenses can be recouped, not the lost salary, that's gone. Right. But some of the travel, some of the service provider, that some of that can be recouped on the first close of the fund and the first capital call. But nonetheless, it's just very expensive. And then after all that happens, the GP has to turn around and typically put up one or two percent of the total amount of the fund as their personal commitment. So it's an expensive proposition and we're looking for ways to be able to help on the front end. But then also we're exploring the ability to invest into the management company of these funds so that they could have permanent capital on their balance sheet to be able to assist with financing the GP commit as a long-term capital gain and then also maybe hiring staff in advance of a final close. That all sounds pretty amazing. Do you have a name for this initiative or a timeline for putting it together? Well, our timeline has accelerated, as I'm sure can be imagined. We had a plan pre-COVID where we were thinking about when we would return to the capital markets for Fund 2 and incorporate a lot of these strategies that I just mentioned. We decided to take a pause and wait for a moment of clarity, as most of the market did. But now, given what we've seen with the hopeful, I'm hopeful that we're going to see a lot of positive, sustainable change around issues that are important to the Black community, We've decided to accelerate now because we've been approached by a lot of our existing limited partners and prospective limited partners who understand that we have a unique opportunity with Plexo Capital to be much more leveraged. It's our opinion that if we can help those GPs get into business, send a positive signal to other LPs and make it easier for them to raise capital, we know that based on the data, the portfolios of diverse GPs are diverse. Mm -hmm. And so we feel that our model can be much more leveraged as opposed to trying to affect change by solely investing into individual companies. Are you seeing your LPs looking to change their LP agreements with other VC firms in order to mandate more diversity? I just have been receiving a few emails more from GPs that are asking how they might look to structure their limited partner agreements to accomplish just that. And I, I do believe, and I had a chance, Connie, to read your article. It, it was spot on. In my opinion, the most effective change can come from the top, to look to the people that are funding the venture capital firms. And what's really interesting, which I don't know if people realize this, and I didn't know a lot of it until I started having to be in the position to raise money at GV. We didn't really have to raise money because we got the money from our sole LP, Alphabet. But when you look at the composition of a lot of these allocators of capital at the institutional LP level, a lot of them are pension funds. And so when you look at pension funds, they are managing groups of employees, typically, you know, a lot of public employees, CalSTRS, CalPERS, California state teachers, California public employees. And when you look at the composition of the employment base, a lot of those people look like me. And so I think what ends up happening is often there's not really a collective realization of the power and influence that one could have within our asset class to actually affect change. So I suspect, I don't know this and I'm not part of any initiatives, but I suspect that we'll see more of these funds take a stance 
and that will come from the bottom up from their employee base because they could put the pressure on our industry in venture capital even simply asking questions how many black partners do you have how many women do you have what's the composition of your portfolio look like even just asking those questions as a first step that in and of itself would affect change because who wants to look bad when you're answering those questions and then i think to your point yes alex the second is okay, maybe we actually need to mandate this as as actual change, because that's usually what it takes. And what sort of formula would you think might work? Would it be a management team has to have a certain percentage of African-Americans? Is there any formula that you have seen that might work? Well, here's what I know. I know that when we have enough reports from the Harvards and the McKinsey's of the world, to show us that diversity at all levels matters. We see better performance from companies with diverse boards, public companies with diverse management teams. When there's diverse managers, we see better performance. So so we know that. And I think going back to our thesis, we know that black people, people of color, women with this indirect path, they have access to different networks. So I think a lot of venture capital firms are starting to realize that. I don't know what the number is, but I just know that when you see it, you can feel it. Like when I look at a firm, I can kind of tell, okay, that's that's a pretty diverse firm. And it's not necessarily based on any sole number. You can just kind of tell, okay, do they have someone in a position that actually has the capability to write a check? That's a good first start because you can have some analysts and associates, but you know what you really need are you need people that are in the position of having the ability to write a check. The more the better. Because if you have a couple of people, then all of a sudden you don't feel this pressure as being the only diverse person on your team. If I'm the only black person on a team of investors, then all of a sudden you don't want the situation where, okay, if I make an investment into a a black entrepreneur, everyone's going to scrutinize that Mm -hmm. deal. Sometimes people might even be hesitant. It's like, oh boy, I know if I make that investment, that like better be the best company or else I might not ever get another shot. We don't want that. Like we don't want that scenario. And so the only way that you get past that is by having more people that are underrepresented in decision-making roles, check writing roles, and a more diverse portfolio. Because then I think the more opportunities you get to see, the better. And there are some firms that have done a really good job of that. I mean, our investor, Kpor Capital, my old shop, GVs, Andreessen Horowitz has made some good investments. So there are some folks out there that are doing it well. I have to say, I think it's the same for women. You know, I think it's really hard to be the first woman in a venture firm. The, mm-hmm. I think the pressure is sort of similar. But I also wanted to know, Lo, what you think when you hear people say it's a pipeline problem? I mean, on the one hand, I think there's probably some truth to that. But then, you know, I was looking at some of the numbers and... African-Americans make up less than 1% of venture-backed founders, but I saw that 7% of Stanford's student population is African-American, which is not a huge percentage, but it's still quite a gap considering that VCs source so many of their deals from Stanford. And then similarly, HBS, actually this was sort of depressing. I saw that um, you know a lot of VCs come from HBS. They graduate 5% of African-American students every year. That hasn't changed in 10 years. But again, 5% versus however many percent of VCs are African-American. It's smaller. So I think a couple of things there. I mean, obviously, we know that these elite universities, they don't have the best track record on representing what the broader demographics look like, even 
where demographics are going directionally. I mean, the, I didn't know that Harvard stat that it's pretty much stayed stagnant. That's yeah. interesting. This pipeline, that's a tricky one mm -hmm. because on the one hand, I, I understand kind of the thought process that goes behind thinking that it's a pipeline problem. But at the same time, I think you have to be way more open about what the right background looks like and think more in terms of, okay, what are the skills as opposed to trying to pattern match on this Harvard dropout wearing a hoodie, right. right? Like that's fine. And you know, if they have a great idea, they should get funded as well. But I think taking a broader approach to what makes a great potential investor, what makes someone a great entrepreneur, there are a lot of capable black people, people of color that might not have the same exact pedigree, but are going to be capable, are going to bring an amazing network, good judgment, the ability to make the right decisions. So yeah, if you're going to look at just that narrowly defined pool and say, well, if we know that you got to go to Harvard or Stanford to be a VC and then, okay, how many black folks are at Harvard or Stanford? Sure. Mm -hmm. Then that's mm -hmm. going to be a very narrow pool. Right. But I think that should just be open and not try to use this cookie cutter approach. Otherwise, we're never really going to going to see change. No, absolutely. I, I mean, now more than ever, I kind of cringe when people tell me about signals they get from their networks, you know, it's sort right. of, especially like during this era where everybody's doing Zoom meetings, it's sort of like, well, maybe I haven't met this person or I've only met them once, but there's sort of this halo effect that they get from their network. But of course you sort of know who is in their network and it's not African-Americans and people of color. That's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, I've, I've talked about this a little bit as well. Like think about the boardroom of publicly traded companies. I hear people say, oh, well, we want to make sure that we have people that are sitting CEOs or recently retired CEOs of other publicly traded companies. And I'm like, okay, and, and are you questioning why your boardroom isn't diverse? I mean, right. if that's going to be your criteria, then no, you're not going to have a diverse boardroom when there's only less than, I can count them on two hands of black uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I don't even know if I need two hands. I might only need one hand at this point. So no, you're not going to have a, a diverse boardroom. This is why thinking needs to expand around what are the core skill sets that we're looking for to be able to fill these roles that can actually affect change, whether it be at the corporate board level, corporate executive level, the VC level, trying to think out of the box in terms of looking at the skills that are needed as opposed to, well, what are the typical backgrounds where we find people with those skills? Right, right. And just gambling on people. I saw this quote yesterday, Monique Woodward, who had started Black Founders, which is a community of startup founders, spent a couple of years as a VC with 500 startups, which is where I'd met her, and is now, I guess, working on a startup of her own, said in an interview last week that, quote, Startup Black venture firm. Startup venture firm, right, right. Yeah. So she said, black founders are often over-mentored and under-invested. If you have the ability yes. to write a check, but you will only offer mentorship to black founders, that is only helpful to your ego. I hear that so much. And in fact, it's sort of good news, bad news, but there's a new initiative called VC Open Door, which 70 VCs have pledged their time between one and four hours each week to make connections to student founders of color through this open hours type initiative, which is great, but I wish they would commit to writing checks rather than just meeting with founders. Again, I'm talking yeah. at you rather than that's, asking a question. I'm sorry, but I'm just wondering what no, you think but about that's, that's, I mean, when I, so I know Monique, she's awesome. And when mm -hmm. I heard that quote, I mean, you know, I was on the black VC call. I think that's where she might've made that. I quote. think that is right. But yeah, that was spot on because it, it, and it, I never thought about this, but 
hey, if you've got the ability to write a check, it's almost insulting to say, oh, I'll, I'll meet with black founders and I'll mentor them. It's like, well, no, don't meet with us and mentor us. Like, write us a check. You can mentor us as Find well. Find us and then mentor us. Write us a check. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, right. There's no better mentorship. There's no better motivation to mentor than when one has actually written a check. Right. Like, I think that's a much better way of approaching it. And your point is valid. Can we get folks to not only say we'll give time but how do you say well, we're also going to write checks and i mean the proof will be there once people actually do it i saw a post and a vc said she was clearing her schedule and i think either half of her meetings were going to be well with I, I, black and latinx there yes. have been a couple, a couple of vcs who've said that they're clearing their calendar for june to just talk to african-american founders yeah, yeah. Which, okay, I like that. But again, back to your point, you know, we got to make sure it translates into into funding. Look, here's the reality. There are already black entrepreneurs out there with great companies that have received great funding and are looking for more funding. Entrepreneurs are always raising. Right. So, you know, there's there's a lot of black entrepreneurs that are out there that have started fabulous companies that are doing phenomenally well. Take meetings with them. Don't be afraid to take meetings with them. Because the other thing is, and this is something that just happens in our industry. Entrepreneurs are often the best source of deal flow. Right. So if you want to fund some black entrepreneurs, meet with the successful black entrepreneurs that are out there, because I guarantee you they are getting inundated by emails and at events from aspiring black entrepreneurs that look to them as inspiration. Like if you took a meeting with like Delane from Play Versus or Morgan from Blavity, I guarantee you they know where all of the and, you know, they kind of have a good eye because they kind of know what it takes to be good. Right. They're not going to steer you down a wrong path. As Monique also said, black entrepreneurs don't need a separate water fountain. They, right. they want to meet with the Sequoias of this world. Sequoia has said, for example, that it will employ more diverse scouts, scouts yeah. to help find deals. Yep. Is that a good first step or what else do you think these firms should consider? That's a good first step. We need more examples and proof points. We need obviously some liquidity, some big scale liquidity events. Because at the end of the day, you know, I always say people ask, you know, hey, what motivates, you know, VCs is, is greed. People want to make as much money as possible for themselves and for their limited partners so that they can raise more and more funds. And really at the end of the day, if VCs feel like, oh boy, I'm missing out, then they will go after those opportunities. So I think doing things like increasing the number of black scouts, I think that's a great thing. I think we'll probably see more of that. I would suspect, I would suspect that we'll probably see a lot of the more prominent black entrepreneurs probably start to, to either publicly or maybe undercover become scouts and start sending deal flow. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that employing these people as well is, is the best thing. So I would encourage the large multi-stage billion plus AUM firms to go out and talk to the, the Elliots of the world at, at Bessemer, the Freds of the world at Storm that are running Black VC, because there's a lot of talent that wants to get into the venture capital industry. And it's just a matter of expanding the network to be able to understand who those folks are. 
And also we need those big funds to get involved because a lot of the efforts right now are still sort of smaller scale. There are a lot of seed stage stuff happening. I do worry mm-hmm. about founders who start to gain traction not being able to secure that Series B because maybe there's somebody who doesn't understand their business. Yeah. You mentioned Delane of Play Versus, which is a fast growing company that's got a lock on the esports market for high school and I guess college students now too. Correct. Full disclosure, Plexo Capital is an investor in Play Versus and Blavity. That's great. Are there a couple of companies that you could sort of mention even on this podcast of things that are kind of gaining traction and you think people should be paying more attention to? Because I do feel like we end up talking about the same companies. That's a good point. And I think it comes back to your comment around the Series B. Mm-hmm. What I'm starting to see is that we don't have that later stage capital. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of part of the problem. Right. So I'm not quite sure how to really think about that. But look, there's a lot of great black entrepreneurs out there. I mean, there's Chris over at Wonder School. There's Ryan over at Cadre. There's Rodney at Solo Funds and Listener. There are a lot of great companies out there. There's folks that are even starting to keep lists. I think Harlem Capital probably has a a pretty good list and database. That probably would be a very easy thing for folks to do, to go and just look at the list itself. Right, right, right. There's so much pressure on the people in this industry to be spokespeople for the industry and push it forward. And I'm sure it's Mm -hmm. a privilege in some ways, but I also just wonder if it's exhausting and if you knew what you were getting into when you hung your own shingle. Like, I'm sure you see deals that maybe don't involve anybody from underrepresented backgrounds and you maybe want to invest in that. And we do. On the direct side, we don't have a a specific mandate. It's just we source them from the portfolios of our GPs. Uh, It just so happens that, you know, the deals that we've done, I think every deal we've done except for two, uh, we've done 15 directs and every one except for two has a black person, person of color, a female as the CEO. Oh, that's great. So because we're going after the best deals. But I guess to your point, okay, do I feel additional pressure? Do other black entrepreneurs, black VCs feel additional pressure? Yeah, I mean, you know, no one wants to always be the, you know, the spokesperson. But on the flip side, I found that I actually do have a platform and a voice. And we did a piece on Medium and I posted it on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I mean, it's been viewed in less than a week. It was viewed over 100,000 times. Wow. So I think there is also a little bit of responsibility to a degree as well to be able to use the little audience that I have to be able to to amplify a message that I think is really important for people to hear. That's a privilege, right? Like these are these are high class problems. Boy, there's a lot of people that would love to have my problems. I have to recognize that and and take this opportunity to share a message that can reach an audience that maybe other people don't have the ability to do. And I think there's a little sense of that for all of us that have gotten to a level where we do have a platform where we can operate from and share a message. So I I don't think it's a burden. It's not a burden. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege. Well, I know there are a lot of demands on your time, so I'm very happy that you made time for us. And I will tell you, I read your story, your Medium post, and I thought it was really inspiring and spot on that we just have to take this opportunity and keep the pressure on. No more tweets about thoughts and prayers or whatever else, but move things forward a little bit. Yeah, and and I'll say thank you for the opportunity. And to anyone listening, there's a lot of allies 
and we need those allies. And so I would just say, I know that there might be times where some of our allies that don't come from the black community, if they're authentic and their heart's in the right place and they slip up here and there, yeah, I just hope that we can kind of embrace and, and help them understand how to use their voice because we need we need your voice as well as allies in this. That's a really great point. I appreciate you saying that. And also, uh, listeners, just so you know, stay tuned because Lo and I are going to be talking again next week for our CB Insights event. So I'm very much looking forward to getting to talk to you again soon. As am I. All right. Take care, Lo. Thanks, Lo. Thank, Thank you. you. that wraps up the latest episode of Strictly VC. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Low Tony. We'll be back next week with another guest who you won't want to miss. Just kidding. We have no idea who's coming on next week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>